Good morning. My name is John. I'm part of the staff at Canyon Ridge, the church, this morning. And it looks like this group here is those in our community that don't have a hangover this morning. <laughs> I've always been intrigued by the difference between winners and losers. It's that quality that some people have that they go through life and they really live well. Uh, they seem to just have a great quality of life and everything they do turns out good and turns out well. And then you have other people who are just as gifted and just as talented and just as determined, but they fail and they don't live well. And what's the difference between those two groups of people? What are the qualities of the person who's able to fight their way through every circumstance and always end up on top, and the guy who is beat down and fails and loses at all the hardships and challenges that he faces? A generation ago, they used to call that gumption. Gumption, it's that ability to just uh, come out on top no matter what to press through, to fight, to win, to achieve, to have a vision, to have something inside that rises up and says, no, I'm not going to settle for that. I can believe for something better and then pursue it and achieve it. And yet some people just seem to be lacking in any gumption at all. So what's that unique ability? What's that characteristic? What are those characteristics that make some people win at life and other people lose? It seems like some people are just destined to fail. You know? It just seems like some people are destined to win. Everything they touch turns to gold. And others, they just keep failing one failure after another. So we wanted to put together a series that was not something like uh, a hooray, hooray, everybody can be a winner, everybody can be a success, and if you just put your mind to it, then you can have it a, a health and wealth gospel concept that, you know, if you just pray hard enough and you just you, you say it in your mind over and over, you can have anything you want. Kind of the Tony Robbins approach to life. I'll tell you. It's not going to be about that because no matter how much I say to myself that I'm going to be in a movie with Jennifer Aniston, it ain't never going to happen. And you can say and say and say you're going to be a major league ball player, but I'm sorry to tell you, you're never going to make the team. So this isn't about some pie-in-the-sky concept of what life should be or could be or dreaming, or fantasizing. This is about an ordinary person, an ordinary man or woman, achieving the absolute best they can in 2012. It's a series called The Game. Socrates said, The unexamined life is not worth living. So true. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourself and see if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. 
Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. I think so many people's lives are characterized by the plane that is flying along and the pilot comes on and he says, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is that we're lost. The good news is we're making great time. You know, working hard, a lot of activity, busy, raising kids, working, doing things, working, working, and accomplishing very little. Maybe you would describe your own life as living, but barely alive. Too many stuck in the rut of chronic dissatisfaction. Nothing satisfies. It's never enough. And once you achieve that one thing, you're on to the next one. And it never brings any sense of satisfaction or this sense of purpose that I've achieved what my life is meant to achieve. Maybe this Christmas and this New Year, you thought about your life and came to the conclusion that your life is dull and boring and unfulfilling and without purpose. So let's talk about the difference between those who achieve and those who don't. This Christmas, undoubtedly, you had some time off. Hopefully you did. Had a chance to stop and rest. And maybe tomorrow, you get tomorrow off as well if you're lucky enough to have the day off tomorrow. And then back to work on Tuesday. And have you noticed that when you're away and you kind of disconnect for a while and you have some time off, it feels good and you're able to relax, but then you know sort of in the back of your mind that it's coming to an end? It's like the last day of your vacation. You don't really enjoy that day, do you? Because you know it's going to end. You've got to go back to work, and you know that all your work that you left is still going to be there, and that maybe it's worse. And isn't it amazing how it just all comes crashing back, and reality hits, and it's like you were never on vacation? I mean, sometimes I come home from vacation, and I say to myself, okay, that was a great vacation. Now I need a vacation from the vacation. You know, because it all just so fleeting. I think that's the genius of the song Hotel California. You know, it was these guys were it was just a garage band. They were just a bunch of buddies hanging out, and overnight they're millionaires. And they get thrust into a whole new life, and they're going and they're doing concert after concert after concert, and the fame and the wealth, and, and they just got caught up in this race of life that they could not escape. No matter what they did, no matter how much pleasure they pursued, they were always snapped and drawn right back into that pursuit of more wealth, more records, more albums, more concerts. And they wrote that great song about being captured by that. So you have to ask yourself this question. What am I doing with my life? And why? Why am I doing this? Who's going to give a rip when I'm gone? 
when you study the difference between those who achieve a great deal and those who achieve very little, you stumble upon one important truth. And it's amazing how one group of people fully, wholeheartedly believe it and the other completely reject it. And that is this truth. That you control the way you live. Those who achieve a lot and are successful, they believe with every bit within them that they choose the kind of life they're going to live. It's funny, you ask people, well, why are you this way? Why do you act that way? And they'll say something like, well, uh, that's just the way I am. Or, uh, that's the way that I was brought up. Almost like their DNA has predetermined their destiny. Or that their environment has captured them and has determined the course of life that they're going to take. You see, people who achieve don't believe that at all. And I'll prove to you that it's false. That it's not true. That you are not held by your race or your social economic status or how smart you are, or how talented you are, or how many friends you have. You are not held by those things. But that you can choose the kind of life you want to have. And I can prove that it's true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, we read this to you and listen. Listen to this. Because of God's grace, and that's the important part to begin with on this scripture, because of God's grace, we have and we can achieve because of the grace of God. I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. No one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. By the grace of God, we have the opportunity to choose the course of our life. Because of God's grace and His empowerment is a gift from God that says you can choose the course of your life. Choose what materials you want to use. Use gold or hay or whatever. Whatever, it's up to you. You choose. But know this. You will be held accountable for the course that you set for yourself. You have to answer to God for the decisions that you made and the life that you chose for yourself. The choice is up to you. And because it's your choice, you're held accountable for it. Now, 
if it was God's choice, then I wouldn't be held accountable for it. Because it would be beyond my ability to do anything about it. I mean, the Seahawks lost last week. That was a great game. Against the 49ers. Great team was this year. Good coaching. But I digress. You can't blame that loss on me. It's not my fault the Seahawks lost last week. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. It is not my fault. So don't hold me accountable for how the Seahawks do. Now, if I'm the quarterback, that's a little different. But I am not. And it's not my fault you didn't get a raise last year. It's your job. It's your career. It's your life. I can't be blamed for that. You see, justice would say that I cannot be held accountable for that of which I have no control over. Is it my fault there's an earthquake? No. And so, if I can be held accountable for it, then it is surely in my power to make the decision of how the course will be. I can choose to achieve or fail. People say, well, make impressive arguments about, well, how about people who just have incredible disadvantage in poverty and hardship and suffering? And It doesn't matter. People who go through the most horrible things still achieve greatness. I think of President Lincoln, who was in unbelievable poverty, grew up in a log cabin with a dirt floor, and went on to become, I think, the greatest president we've ever had. But you choose. Those who are waiting for success to find them I think, will wait their entire lives and perhaps never find it. Because success isn't something that comes upon you accidentally. Whenever I walk into a room and the game has already begun, the first thing I want to know is, what's the score? The first thing I ask. Because the score is reality. The score tells me where we're at. Are we winning? Are we doing well? Or are we doing as we always do and we lose? It defines reality. And I think that you're keeping score too. That we're sort of pre-programmed to keep score. You know, and we keep score all day long on all kinds of things. We make judgments about the score all day long, about people we see and things we hear. And we're scoring in our mind. It's like we're pre-programmed for it. We're made to keep score. When my boys were really little, they, they played t-ball. And you know t-ball is the, you know, the real little guys where they put the ball on the, on the stick, right? And you're just hitting that stick. And the ball goes two feet. And then they, you take off running. And there's no fielding, really. It's just groups of boys running from place to place throughout the field. 
I remember my boys were always far more fascinated with the grass and the dirt than they were baseball. And so at that level, all of the mothers get together and say, oh, there'll be no scorekeeping because this is just a fun game for the children. And you can see all the dads going, okay. But you know what? I noticed they kept score anyway. All the men gathered together on one side, and they said things like, oh, hey, you see? He, he fielded that ball right. Score, you know? Giving score to each child here. They're keeping score even without keeping score. Man has been keeping score since the beginning of time. Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice. And one wasn't good enough. And one was. Jacob and Esau, the twelve tribes of Israel, Saul and David. Man has been keeping score for a very long time, and I think we're meant to keep score. So the question really is, then how? How do you keep score? I think there are three principal ways that we keep score. First one is comparison. Every year, Forbes, at this time of year, publishes their top billionaires of the world, top successful people, top achievers. And so they did this year. Number one, Carlos Slim, Mexican businessman, $74 billion, the richest man in the world. Number two, of course, is Bill Gates. <clears throat> he used to be number one. He's number two. Number three is Warren Buffett. Number four is some dude in France. Number 10, Christy Walton, the richest of the Walmart, Walmart family, $26 billion. But I found another list. It was the top 10 things that nobody could give a rip about in 2011. 3D TVs, big flop. Tech IPOs. Joe Biden was on the list. <laughs> Blackberry tablets. But we make comparisons all the time, comparing ourselves up and down on the ladder, however it suits us. When I go to pastors' conferences, it really, I really hate them. I don't like going to them. Uh, sometimes they're good, but usually it's this total weekend of comparing. And you walk up to another pastor, and the first thing you say is after hello is, how many people are in your congregation, and how much money did you take in last year? And it's really just a way of measuring people, comparing to see if you're a worthwhile pastor, if you're a good contact for me or somebody that I should know, somebody of importance. I think there, there's ranges, you know. It, it depends. If you're, if you're above 500, then maybe you're somebody that's worth knowing, and so more people will be friendly to you and hang out with you. I've always fantasized about going to those meetings and say, oh, yeah, we've got 10,000 people. Just to see what they would say. Well, I've never heard of you. Kiss my ring, and then I'll tell you more. 
But we make these comparisons, and that's one way to keep score. If that's the way you keep score, then you'll compare yourself to everyone and everything. Another way to keep score is competition. I love competition. I'm a very competitive person. I'm not sure why. But I love to compete. And yet there is a point where competition becomes toxic when it goes into that area of envy and jealousy. Competition can be very ugly and very bad and negative, but it is one way to keep score. It's to compete. And always be in competition with other people and other things and other departments, other churches, and what have you. Competing with your brothers and sisters and competing with your parents and Competing with your friends and your neighbors. It's a way of measuring where you're at. Keeping score. Finding out what reality is. See who's on top. There's a third way to keep score. And I just made this up. I mean, it is a, it is a phrase, but Christ-likeness. What that basically means is Christ-likeness is pursuing to become more like Christ. And that's what that phrase means. It means that the only person I compare myself to is Christ. The only person I'm competing with is Christ. Everything is Christ-focused. He's the goal. He's my focus. My eyes are on Jesus. That method of keeping score. Philippians 2, I think, shows us what God's attitude was, what his mentality was, what his thinking was as it pertained to his mission on the earth and mankind. So in the same way that you would think about your career and your calling and what your purpose is on this earth and why you're here and what you're supposed to be doing, what is your life supposed to be all about, the same kind of thinking in your mind, can be compared to this in Philippians 2. And so Paul says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress other pastors. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. If you're a ladder climber and you see yourself as climbing the corporate ladder, and that's what your life is about, you're focused on getting up the next rung. And maybe you have them labeled. Maybe they're goals in your life. Or 
I'm going to achieve this, and then I'm going to have this, and then I'm going to have this. And there are rungs on the ladder. And as you're climbing up, you will eventually run into Christ on his way down. Because Christ is not climbing up the ladder. He's climbing down the ladder. It's in reverse. It's not about what maybe you think it's about. It's a different way of keeping score. It's pursuing Christ-likeness. It's the quality of life of being like Jesus. Being a servant. Giving away. Offering somebody else an advantage. It's the heart that a father has towards his son. You see, a brother wants to put the other down. You may have noticed that if you have brothers. See, I'm the biggest in my family. So now nobody messes with me. But when I was, I'm born the youngest, and so when I was the smallest, oh, I got beat down. And that was my brother's sole responsibility, is to keep me down. And so he would do that on a regular basis. But a father doesn't see his son that way. A father wants the son to be better. He wants the son to achieve more to be more successful, to do more than he ever did. You see, that's the concept here. That's the the attitude that Jesus had, that you would achieve more. So let me ask you this question. What kind of person are you going to be in 2012? What kind of life are you going to choose to live? Are you going to pursue a dream, a vision, a plan for something great to achieve something wonderful for the kingdom of God? Or are you just going to be the same? Same as you were in 2011. Are you going to take a stand? Are you going to take a stand and say, I have a destiny in Christ Jesus. That God has a destiny for my life. Do you know that God's heart for you this year is to succeed, to win, not to fail, not to shrink back? You know, I am so excited about 2012, more excited perhaps than I have been at any other time in my life. I believe this is going to be an amazing year for my family and for our church. I think this will be a year of removing barriers and breaking strongholds. I think this will be a year to see God do mighty, mighty things. Or are you going to settle for the same old, same old status quo? morning, I would like to challenge you, challenge you to take a stand for a better life. Would you stand up with me? I'd like to make this declaration in faith. It comes out of this 
I don't know, this, I will not quit this determination, this, this gumption. This gumption that says, I don't know what 2012 is going to be, but I'm going to pursue it with everything that I have to be better than 2011. You know, 11 was so bad for some of you, you are sure to win at a better 2012. It's only going to be up for you. And so let's say this this morning. It's a declaration in faith that this is what my year is going to be for me. So I will read it. I'll be on the screen behind me. And then you read it out loud. We'll read it together. Is it up there? Ready? Begin. 2012 will be the best year of my life. I will grow in Christ's likeness. Go. I will grow in Christ's likeness. My income will increase. My income will increase. My relationships will be better. My relationships will be better. I will love more, serve more, and laugh more. I will love more, serve more, and laugh more. 2012 will be the best year of my life. So help me God. Amen.